Welcome to this week's edition of the Pete Mazzetti Show. I'm Pete Mazzetti. My guest this evening is Dr. David David Banish, who is with UConn Health. Dr. Banish, welcome. How are you? Doing well. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for coming down. Thanks for coming down. So, Dr. Banish, can you maybe tell us a little bit about yourself and your background, please? Sure. Um, so, I'm uh, an infectious disease doctor here at UConn Health. Um, I have a role in a few different areas. I take care of patients, you know, both up here at the hospital um, and in the outpatient setting. And I also have oversight over our infection control programs um, here at UConn and um, do some teaching at the medical school as well. So I have a little bit of each. And um, you know, in terms of uh, the most recent uh, years, a lot of that has shifted towards COVID-19 and um, our response uh, from uh, UConn Health in uh, both taking care of our patients, ensuring the safety of our employees, and also uh, serving the community. Absolutely. Now, now with what's with what's going on with the COVID-19, how have you guys been handling from when it first started to where we are now? Well, it's been uh, been quite a journey. Um, <laughs> I think um, you know, back in early 20, uh, 2020, yeah. um, uh, you know, there was uh, you know a huge. Um, uh, you know, influx and of uh, patients coming into the hospital with uh, COVID. You know, I think we were really hampered with our ability to test. And, you know, at that point, testing was really limited. Um, we were still learning so much about the infection um, and treatment options were pretty limited. Um, and uh, our hospital census of COVID patients was quite high. Um, and then, you know, since then we've seen, um, you know, fluctuations, um, you know, our hospitalization rates has kind of mirrored what's been seen in the community um, in terms of, you know, rising rates, um, you know, last winter, uh, then a bit uh, in this uh, summer and fall, we've had uh, some increase in hospitalizations. Um, and then most recently with Omicron, interestingly, we've had a lot more infections in the community and the rate of hospitalizations hasn't risen as quickly as it has in prior um, surges. So, you know, we still have, um, you know, patients with COVID here in our hospital and, you know, we're uh, trying to, um, of course, now our, uh, our treatments are, um, further advanced and you know and vaccinations I think are probably the most important intervention we've had so far in protecting um, the community protecting our staff protecting our patients so you know, I think we've come a long way um, in uh, the last uh, two years that's for sure right now what exactly is the Omicron variants and what are the, what's the difference in the different type of variances so I think the Omicron variant um, is unique from previous variants it has uh, many mutations um, in uh, the spike protein. And that's the protein that um, binds to the human um, cells in the nose and, and the lungs. Um, and uh, so, so that part of the virus has mutated quite a bit. Um, and it seems to make it uh, more infectious. So it uh, is, is more contagious. It, it kind of sticks more easily to um, those receptors um, in our bodies. And um, that makes people more vulnerable to um, becoming infected if they're exposed. So I think um, you know that's the major difference that we're seeing with this variant. You know we're still trying to understand um, severity of illness um, and how well uh, vaccines provide protection, um, and then also looking at how it impacts some of our treatments um, in, a, in, in specific ways. Right. Now, as far as the difference in obviously everybody has gotten their first vaccine, their second vaccine, everybody hopefully has gotten their booster shot now you having getting all three shots that basically what does that what does that mean if you catch the virus so you know what we're seeing is folks who have gotten um three doses so the two mm -hmm. primary series plus the booster have a high protection against um severe infections so um you know you're, you still have those antibodies those um, t-cells 
um, that uh, the critical part of your immune system that help prevent you from uh, developing severe infections. So, um, and those, that prevent, prevents hospitalizations and uh, prevents mortality. Um, and you know, I think what we are seeing, we are seeing that these, that those individuals who have gotten boosters can uh, develop infection. Okay. Um, but fortunately, in um, most um, cases, nearly all cases, it's um, it's mild and self-limiting. Um, and you know, I think that's important for people to know that uh, the, the vaccines, in particular the booster, really do provide um, high level of protection against um, against I'm illness. No, I, oh, I, oh, absolutely, absolutely. And it's probably really important that you get your all three shots, and then you go and get your booster. I know I got I got my booster shot a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, and I think that's the key message. You know, we've uh, as a state, we've done a great job um, in uh, the uh, initial vaccinations. You know, we had some of the highest uh, vaccine uh, coverage in the country. You know, I think getting the boosters out, you know, still some work to do. Um, yep. And I think. Um, you know, that's really what we need to help uh, mitigate the impact of this Omicron variant on, uh, on the community. Now, as far as the, and I, I know the state of Connecticut has recently started rolling out their home testing kits, but as far as the, the, as far as the home testing kits goes, how accurate are they compared to if you go and get the test from where your local pharmacy or have a, have a professional pharmacist or somebody professionally do it rather than getting the kit from home and doing it yourself? Yeah, so I mean, I think um, there's a few different parts to that question. Um, okay. You know, the home tests are the antigen tests. Um, and that is um, a little bit different than the, what we call the PCR tests. Those are um, the molecular tests. So those tests, whether or not there's any presence of any virus um, uh, genetic material in the nose. So. Um, overall, the sensitivity of the PCR test is a bit higher. But for people with symptoms, um, the antigen tests um, are quite are quite accurate. Um, they perform well, um, and um, I think that's really the best use for them. So someone who has symptoms, trying to distinguish whether it's um, cold or allergies or COVID, you know, in that kind of setting, an antigen test can be helpful. If you want to increase the um, the sensitivity of the test, doing a second test if the first one is negative um, can help do that. Uh, but I think it is also important to remember that you know the test is only as good as the specimen that's collected. So right. you're really making sure that you, um, if you're going to be doing that home test, you follow the instructions very carefully. Take um, a, a good specimen, a high-quality specimen from the nose. Um, that's going to help um, sort of maximize the accuracy of, of the test. I think that's really critical for um, for people to be aware of. You know, the test is only as good as um, the sample that's provided. No, absolutely. No, obviously, the other thing we want to talk about is the quality of like. Guess there's different varieties of masks that you wear when you're have to mask up out, out there and out there in the world. There's the blue masks, and then the then there's the KN95 masks. What's the difference, and which is the most common to wear to try to prevent the spread of the virus? Sure. So um, yeah, I mean it's important to be thinking about mask quality. You know, if you'll recall back um, in early 2020, there were like hardly any masks available, and you know, <laughs> right, we were, we were kind yeah. of resorted to homemade masks and like that now masks are much more uh, readily available and you know there's several different types like you mentioned you know I'm, I'm actually here in the hospital we have our, our blue kind of surgical masks yep um, and these masks are, are effective they have um, usually three layers of um, filtration um, and then that's in contrast to masks like this KN95 mask um, that I have these are these are um, have more layers of filtration usually um, five layers um, yep. uh, of uh, filtration so they provide a bit of a higher filtration they also fit a little tighter 
Um, so, you know, I think, um, you know, these K95, for people who can wear them and um, are able to get them and uh, wear them comfortably, um, I think that they're a good option right now, particularly in areas that are um, a little higher risk, like uh, indoor spaces um, where there's a lot of people um, gathering. You know, I think um, the, the added filtration can be beneficial um, in uh, those kinds of environments. Um, so, you know, I, I am sort of encouraging folks to, um, to wear higher quality masks. Uh, particularly during the surge period where there's just a lot of virus um, circulating in the community right now. Um, so, you know, I think thinking about the quality of your mask um, as well as the fit, um, you know, right. are really important. You know, make, having a mask that fits well, covers the nose and mouth, and really kind of fits closely to the face, um, you know, is really going to help maximize the benefit from wearing one. Now, in your opinion, as far as the masks, masks go, how many days should you wear each mask for? Can, are they good for a day or so, or should you just, when you like when you get home at night, put it on during the day, when you get home at night, throw it out and then start the next day with a fresh mask? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, it's a balance. Uh, you know, the mask, um, you know, in uh, a perfect situation, we would just keep disposing of them, but you know, that has its downside too, both in terms of um, financial costs, but also environmental costs. Right. Um, so, you know, I think we should be mindful of that. You know, the key things that I think about with my, um, when I'm wearing a mask and deciding when to uh, discard it, um, you know, first of all, if it, if it gets soiled, um, you know, by all means, you know, discard it right away. Right. Um, if you notice that it starts to show signs of wearing down, like fraying, you know, that could be a sign that maybe the filtration is going to be impacted. At that point, you'd want to discard it. And then um, if you find that the straps are loosening, it's not fitting tightly, um, also another reason to, uh, to discard it. Absolutely, absolutely. So, so exactly how long have you been with UConn? So I, um, well, I'm from Connecticut originally and went okay. to medical school at UConn um, and then graduated, um, did some uh, residency and in, um, infectious disease specialty training um, in New York and then came back to Connecticut um, in uh, 2012 and I've been here at UConn since 2016 um, on the faculty in my current role. Now, how, how, big, how big is the UConn health system? Um, well, the hospital itself, um, you know, I think we're about 250 beds or so. Wow. Um, you know, we have a large foothold in the outpatient practice, so we have multiple outpatient um, sites uh, throughout the region. Okay. Um, and uh, we also have, um, you know, our uh, sort of academic foothold with the medical, dental, and graduate schools. Um, that's a big part of our campus and then, um, you know, fairly large um, research uh, component as well. So the campus itself is quite large um, and, uh, and pretty extensive. Um, based out, out of Farmington, but also with sites uh, at other parts throughout the state. Okay, so you, you obviously you guys have multiple locations as well? Yes, um, our um, infectious disease practice um, is primarily based um, here in the Farmington campus, but we do have okay. some sites. Um, we have a site in uh, East Hartford, um, and um, we work uh, with some of the other off-sites uh, to provide kind of consultation. Now, now exactly with the with all with all the different campuses, obviously you guys are seeing patients, but you guys are probably being very cautious and very careful as far as who walks in the building. Yeah, um, you know we we are pretty um, pretty strict. We we have entry screening at all of our sites. Um, you know we really don't want folks who are symptomatic uh, to come into the health center. We have other ways to provide care, either through our urgent care centers. We also have drive-through testing um, that's available for um, folks who are mildly symptomatic and. Um, want to get tested and then, you know, of course in the emergency room, um, you know, we, we provide care to all those who need it. Um, but, uh, you know, we are, we are um, being particularly cautious, you know, with this recent um, 
uh, surge in uh, infections in the community um, with regard to patient entry and also visitor entry as well. It's really trying to minimize the risk to um, our patients that are here um, as well as our um, staff. Absolutely. Now, what is the difference between the, or is there a difference between the Johnson & Johnson shot, the, the Pfizer shot? So yeah, and, so yeah, and so I think, what is? Yeah, these vaccines, um, you know, there's many vaccines that are out there. The three here in the United States are um, currently the, um, M, what we call the mRNA vaccine, so the okay. Pfizer and the Moderna vaccine. Yeah. Um, and um, the Johnson Johnson vaccine, which uses a slightly different type of technology um, to uh, generate um, uh, the protective immunity. Um, so, so they work, so I'd, I'd say the, um, the Pfizer and the Moderna are very analogous. Um, they're both, uh, you know, two doses, um, and then uh, they, in, in doing so, they generate a high level of immunity um, through, um, through uh, that mechanism that kind of simulates uh, the spike protein on the virus, whereas the um, Johnson Johnson vaccine uses a slightly different technology um, to generate an immune response. You know, it was initially uh, rolled out as a single-dose vaccine, um, but I think uh, subsequently the data has really shown that probably two doses is really what's needed to provide a robust response. So all those um, folks who got initial Johnson Johnson vaccine are recommended to get a booster dose either with a Johnson and Johnson or now um, the preferred booster is one of the mRNA vaccines, the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines. Dr. Bennett, would you mind sticking around for another segment? Sure. All right, we'll be right back. Contact tracing is one of the best voluntary ways to stop the spread of COVID-19, and information provided will be kept private. But imposters might pretend to be contact tracers to get access to your personal information or money. Real contact tracers will never ask for your social security number or financial information. You'll receive text or emails from contact tracers only if you have opted in. If you don't recognize the tracer's phone number, contact your local health department. To learn more about contact tracing, please visit portal.ct.gov slash coronavirus slash contact. Hey world, I have a quick message. It's about safe driving. All right, let's go. Anytime you're driving, have the seatbelt buckle tight, both hands on the wheel, and your phone out of sight. We're not in your hand trying to text somebody back, because if you do, your car might get smacked. The moral of the story, just put your phone down. The people on the road will stay safe and sound. Put your phone down, put your phone down. People on the road will stay safe and sound. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome back to this week's edition of the Pete Mazzetti Show. I'm Pete Mazzetti sitting here with Dr. David Banish from UConn Health. Dr. Banish, welcome back. Thanks. Thanks. So, Dr. Banish, I was, we were talking a little bit about in the first segment the virus, and I was wondering maybe if we can talk, open up the segment talking about the other aspects of the COVID-19. I know we talked about the Omicron variants a little bit in the first segment. Maybe we can pick up and talk, I'll get a little bit more in detail about the different variances. Sure. Um, so, I mean, I think tracing from uh, the beginning of the pandemic, the initial variant that we saw um, was uh, the, what we call, what we term the wild type uh, variant. So the, the variant that was first identified, um, you know, in Wuhan, China, and then spread throughout the, uh, throughout the globe. You know, that, that's sort of the initial variant that we saw. And, it, um, you know, we learned a lot about coronavirus um, in general, particularly the SARS-CoV-2, which is the novel coronavirus. Um, and um, we learned a lot about uh, the illness that it can cause, how it spread. Um, and then, you know, I think um, tracing along the pathway, we saw subsequent variants. You may recall there was a, what was termed an alpha variant. So that was a, um, a slight change from the, um, the initial wild type variant that was seen initially in England um, and uh, subsequently spread. Um, and then uh, later we saw 
um, you know, additional variants, particularly the Delta variant was another one um, that sort of appeared um, last uh, spring and summer. Um, really, um, what, what this variant showed, um, and, and the previous variants, um, you know, seemed to be more um, infectious than uh, the initial wild type variant. So they spread a little bit more easily. Um, and um, now, fortunately, uh, the vaccines um, provided a high level of protection against um, the, uh, those alpha and beta and delta variants. Um, you know, now we're tasking it with the Omicron variant, which you know, seems to be more infectious uh, than these other variants, seems to spread uh, much more quickly um, than uh, the, the Delta variant, uh, which was already um, highly transmissible. So, you know, I think I think that's um, what's been notable about these new uh, variants when they're identified. Um, and, um, you know, I think uh, it really showed that it's um, really critical from a public health perspective that we monitor um, for new variants and um, get a good understanding as to uh, what's circulating in the community and how we can um, react uh, appropriately to try to prevent their spread and, uh, and help keep people safe. Now, if somebody feels like they have, how can someone tell if they're getting sick or if it's just a head cold as compared to if they think they have the virus? Yeah, it's becoming difficult, uh, particularly with vaccinated folks. Um, so, you know, vaccinated folks, as I mentioned uh, in the earlier segment, tend to have milder infection. Um, so, you know, it can be difficult to distinguish uh, between, uh, you know, COVID-19 causing some uh, nasal congestion, sore throat versus other viruses. And that's where testing can actually be really important um, in trying to distinguish between um, those different uh, explanations. You know, I think, um, you know, unfortunately, because the, the uh, community level transmission at this moment is very high. Yes. Um, you know, I think uh, the default would be um, on the presumption that if you have any symptoms that are, you know, sinus symptoms, cold symptoms, it's most likely going to be from COVID-19. Um, not always, um, right. but I think until um, you can test and uh, feel confident that um, it's not, you know, I think uh, at the moment, uh, you know, presumption that it is COVID-19 uh, would be, uh, be the prudent approach. And that's in contrast to, like you'll recall last summer, uh, rates of COVID were very low. Um, so if you presented with um, nasal symptoms, um, probably more likely to be seasonal allergies uh, versus COVID. So I think, you know, that's what it's important to be mindful of what's happening in the community in terms of these viruses and trying to, um, to uh, get an understanding as to the symptoms that one might be experiencing. Because there is so much overlap between them, there's a few a few characteristics that seem to be a little unique about um, COVID. So, the loss of taste and smell, for instance, um, not something that we commonly see with other cold viruses. Um, you know, that seemed to be a unique characteristic. Um, and then, you know, things like fever and cough tend to be a little bit more common um, with uh, COVID uh, compared to other kinds of infections. Although, uh, you know, the flu can certainly mimic it uh, quite well. Right. Now, obviously, washing your hands is probably another important one to try to prevent the spread of the virus as well. Yeah, um, you know, hand washing, um, you know, I mean, important for all viruses, preventing right. spread Absolutely. of viruses. Um, you know, it, it definitely, um, you know, is an effective way and kind of the cornerstone of uh, a lot of the infection prevention uh, strategies that we have. Uh, so, you know, hand washing um, can, is, is always important, particularly if you're going to be uh, doing some activity that's going to involve you know, face touching and eating right. and things like that. I think uh, you know, that's where hand washing can, um, can be most important. I haven't figured out how to drink a cup of coffee with a mask on yet, so I guess that mm -hmm. still has to be that still has yeah, to be worked on. There's probably some some mask that's in design <laughs> that allows for uh, coffee sipping, but uh, I think uh, do, do your best to uh, drink your coffee in a situation where you're 
probably not going to want to be wearing a mask. <laughs> it, absolutely, because you don't want to wear the coffee over the mask because then you'll have that big coffee smile on your mask and that probably, that probably wouldn't look too good. Yeah, it'll uh, defeat the purpose of the mask. Abs absolutely, absolutely. So what else we want to tell everybody about the, about the variants and about the COVID? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, there's a few things that, um, you know, people should be aware of. So, you know, the, what we're seeing with Omicron is that, you know, the vaccines still hold up very well. So, you know, there's still an opportunity to get vaccinated. You know, the protection that you get from the vaccine, um, it doesn't start instantly, but it, are, it starts to build, um, you know, even days after you get your vaccine. So, you know, it's not too late if you haven't been vaccinated, you're still thinking about it. You know, we're at the point now where we've given out millions of uh, vaccines right. um, and, uh, you know, the safety profile looks, looks quite good. Um, so, you know, if you haven't been vaccinated, um, you know, go ahead and get that vaccine. And um, if you're due for a booster also, you know, the boosters really seem to be very impactful in um, preventing um, uh, infection um, with Omicron. So, you know, I think uh, all the more reason to go out and, uh, and get that booster. And then, you know, on top of um, the vaccines, you know, those extra layers of protections, you know, things like masking, um, trying to avoid um, enclosed spaces with, where lots of people are gathering, because we know mm -hmm. that that's the type of environment where the virus spread, you know, it, it all kind of builds on each other to try to uh, to maximize um, one's protection uh, against COVID. Now, obviously, if you feel sick or not, don't feel well, obviously, go get go get yourself tested and don't assume it's on. It's automatically the COVID. It could be a head cold. It could be a sinus infection. Yeah, I think, um, you know, in addition to going to get tested, you know, trying to isolate yourself, you know, not coming to work when you're sick. Um, you know, trying to do what you can to avoid spreading um, virus to other people, you know, in your household or in your community, and whether that involves, you know, wearing a mask, um, right. you know, that's another way to kind of prevent um, spread if you do have symptoms. So all these measures can kind of uh, can add on one another in order to try to reduce, um, you know, the risk of spread as much as you can. No, absolutely, absolutely. We had a little bit more time left. So what else do we want to educate our viewers about? Yeah, I mean, I think um, also be mindful of uh, what's happening in the community. You know, the, these um, what's become quite clear is that uh, these um, COVID uh, surges come, you know, in um, in waves. Right. Uh, so, you know, right now we're in the middle of a wave. You know, you know, hopefully, um, you know, this wave will pass and uh, you know we'll be in a better position. But kind of be mindful, be attentive to what uh, to what you're hearing as far as the risk in the community, um, and um, you know, adjust your activities accordingly. You know, this is. You know, probably having like large gatherings um, with people um, you don't live with, or people are going to be eating and not wearing yeah. masks. That's I, I would really um, caution against uh, that at this moment. And not to say, hopefully, in you know a couple of months, things will look different. Um, and uh, you know, so just be mindful of, of what's happening around us. Um, you know, both kind of locally here in Connecticut, but also uh, you know more broadly. Absolutely. Now, tell us how how easy is it when you go and get tested? Um, so I think one of the challenges, and this is a this is a, a big challenge right now, is access to testing. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I think um, you know we at UConn Health we we do offer testing, but the capacity is not um, unlimited. I mean, all the hospitals, you know, retail pharmacies that offer testing, you know, are all really struggling to try to maximize, and we're doing all we can to get more testing availability, more um, capacity to do testing. Um, you know, here at UConn, just trying to build that as much as we can. But, um, you know, there's a lot of people out there that need to get tested. So, um, and, and that's where home testing can uh, become beneficial. I know uh, the state's been really, um, really out front in trying to get uh, people access to home tests. So if you can get access to a home test, 
um, you know, even if you're not symptomatic at the moment, um, you know, having that available if you do become symptomatic and then can readily test yourself, I think, is important. So, um, and, and I think the testing capacity will continue to increase. Um, you know, like I said, here at UConn, we're working to do that. You know, every day we're uh, trying to figure out new ways to expand our testing, and all the hospitals and um, you know healthcare systems throughout the state are doing the same thing. So I, I think it will improve, but um, you know, right now it's it's just not where we need, where we want it, or where, quite frankly, where we need it to be. Um, but uh, you know, I, th I think we will get there. Absolutely, and I, I was going to say with the with the home testing, they're probably the accuracy percentage is actually pretty good, right? Yeah, um, I think in terms of accuracy, really most um, helpful when symptomatic. So um, if you're having symptoms, you know, that's the right time to get um, a home test. You know, I think in terms of how they perform for people who have, don't have symptoms, um, you know, I think uh, they may not um, be as sensitive at detecting virus, um, probably because the virus levels are lower um, at that point. Uh, but once you get to the point where you've, um, you're symptomatic, you know, going ahead and getting that um, rapid test can be important. Um, and as I mentioned earlier in the earlier segment, if you want to really um, uh, maximize the sensitivity um, if you get an initial negative and following it up with another test. Um, uh, you know, usually 12 hours later or so uh, can help make the test a little even more sensitive. Now, as far as if you get a positive test, how long can the virus stay in your body for? So, good question. Um, you know, we're learning, you know, the, um, the standard had been. Um, for most people who have normal immune systems, aren't like very immunocompromised, you know, 10 days of um, isolation is what was recommended. Okay. Um, that's generally, you know, how long the virus can shed. You know, in, in very immunocompromised people, it may be a bit longer. Um, but, um, you know, I think we're learning a little bit more that um, a lot of the shedding occurs in the earlier portion of that 10-day period, um, which is why, you know, you're hearing recommendations, you know, maybe the isolation period can be shortened a bit. Um, and I think we're, we're kind of moving in that direction. But uh, you know, I think that the general stance is that 10 days um, is kind of the standard. Um, but uh, in some situations, it may be shorter. And there's also um, a lot of interest in using um, sort of follow-up testing to determine whether or not um, the period of isolation can be a bit shorter. And I think that's something that, as testing becomes more available, is going to become part of the um, part of the isolation uh, procedures. Dr. David Banish from UConn Health. Thanks for some time, and we'll see you again soon. Sounds good. Thank you for having me on. Thank you. On behalf of Dr. David Banish, I'm Pete Mazzetti. Thanks. Good night. We'll see you next time.